Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. So President Donald Trump has nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to be the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States. And I want to tell you a little bit about Judge Gorsuch, and I also want to tell you what I think about him and why I think his nomination is incredibly important. Uh, There are many things that are sort of revolutionary about uh, Judge Gorsuch. Uh, He's, uh, first of all, one of the youngest men ever to be nominated. He's uh, 49 years old, born in 1967. He's also from Colorado. He was born in Denver. And uh, that's that's all of that is unique. His mother was the first female head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is uh, a very uh, great honor, of course, and a historic role. Uh, she had a rather troubling end to that role. She experienced a decline, caught up in some Reagan era politics that you can read about online, and uh, that certainly affects Judge Gorsuch's thinking about such things. But um, he is also one of the most educated men ever to be nominated. Nominated. Uh, he not only has a bachelor's degree from Georgetown and a law degree from Harvard, that's fairly standard for Supreme Court justices, but he also has a PhD from Oxford University. It's fairly rare for people who have JDs to go on for PhDs and then to do so at, you know, arguably the best university in the world, uh, Oxford University. Interestingly enough, his PhD is uh, on the issue of uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia. So he actually has a doctorate from Oxford, a PhD, and I mention that only because it's, it's one of the more aggressive degrees to get um, on the on a subject that he'll have to rule on and that is very much uh, contested in our generation. He clerked for Supreme Court Justices Byron White. I'm sorry, uh, Byron and White, two two different Supreme Court justices. Uh, he also uh, served in private practice for a very large law firm for about a year. He worked for the Department of Justice, and then George W. Bush appointed him to the Tenth Circuit Court. Uh, he's very interesting in his rulings. He definitely is an originalist. He believes we ought to stay as close to the text of the Constitution as possible. He's even said that we ought to rule backwards, not forward, meaning that we should go back to what the words of the Constitution meant at the time that they were written, uh, rather than bringing avant-garde philosophy and cutting-edge trendy social thinking uh, and embedding it in the text, inserting it in the text. In other words, if the original framework of the Constitution could not have conceived of a certain interpretation uh, of the law, then, of course, it's not what they intended and therefore ought not be the law. He's definitely a textualist. He's definitely an originalist. Uh, He's very much in the mold of Justice Scalia. Uh, whose, of course, seat he is he is taking. Um, it's also interesting that he is w- one of the most, and this is where Donald Trump perhaps has uh, the, his his information uh, correct, and I'm and I'm grateful for that. Um, his nomination process and his rulings are among the most public ever. Uh, for a judge of this type. In other words, uh, Donald Trump had him on a list of potential justices when he was a candidate. Uh, there was then a short list.
list issued with eight nominees or possible nominees on it. Judge Gorsuch was uh, on that. So his name has been uh, in circulation and a a possibility from the Trump administration for more than a year. Um, And also because he did sit on the 10th Tenth Circuit, um, he's ruled in approximately or participated in approximately 2,700 cases, uh, almost the text of almost all of which is available. All of his rulings are available. Uh, He's written 240 opinions, um, including 175 majority opinions. In other words, there's there's no mystery as to what this man believes. We've had some people nominated who had fairly thin resumes in terms of their rulings. They were in private practice more than they were in uh, judgeships. They didn't have near the body of work uh, that is as public as Neil Gorsuch. But um, this man, as I say, has written 240 uh, majority opinions. Now, I'm not a, a legal scholar, so I don't know how that ranks with other uh, Supreme Court justices, but it's it's pretty, pretty in, in rarefied air uh, overall. Now, what I think is important for us to recognize is that Neil Gorsuch rec- uh, represents uh, something that Justice Scalia also represented, and that is an, an end to the avant-garde, sort of the law is whatever judges say it is, kind of approach to uh, judgeships, kind of approach to the judiciary. Uh, there is a modern trend in legal interpretation, which is called various things. I call it either legal realism or sociological jurisprudence. And basically, it is the idea that you take the words of the Constitution and you put meaning into them. You take modern philosophy, modern sociological thinking, uh, ideas that come from the university classroom, and you sort of uh, apply it to the Constitution. Well, the other view is called originalism or original intent, and the idea is that you look at what the Founding Fathers intended and you rule only that far, Uh, that you you stay within the context of what the Founding Fathers intended. Now, this will bother some people, especially folks who've been schooled at our modern universities, but let me explain a little bit why I, too, am an originalist uh, and a textualist, and I am very much with Neil Gorsuch, and I believe that he is a fine nominee uh, and will be confirmed. In fact, he's already shown a good deal of independence. I I trust that you saw in the news uh, that he actually criticized uh, some of Donald Trump's criticism of the judiciary, of judges. So he's an independent thinker. He's a man who speaks his mind. Um, He is a man who will push back against some of the trends in uh, jurisprudence in recent years. But let me explain why this is uh, so critically important. Uh, The Constitution was written by human, flawed, sinful men uh, at a certain time in history. It's not scripture. It's not, didn't fall from heaven. Uh, It is the best thinking of our founding fathers at the time. It is a brilliant document. Um, Some uh, religious denominations, like Mormons, for example, believe it's even inspired. Um, It's it's, uh, quite remarkable. And one of the things that's remarkable about it is that it provides for its own amendment. It provides for its own modification. The founding fathers were not so arrogant as to believe that they could decide all matters for all time on all issues uh, all at once in one document. They're, they're, they did not believe that. So they, they, they believed that their constitution would require amendment. They provided a process for that. In fact, the Bill of Rights, they themselves uh, instituted the first 10 amendments amendments to the Constitution uh, because they recognized right away they need guarantees of religious of uh, individual individual liberty. 
So uh, the point is that for those of us who believe that we should be interpreting the Constitution in terms of its original language, its original intent, um, then that provides a certain amount of safety. Uh, it keeps us from just giving in to trendy philosophies and concepts and ideas, um, and it and it allows us to stay within the strict confines of the Constitution. Now, uh, some of you probably are even thinking at this moment, well, now Mansfield's quite an outspoken advocate for African Americans. Um, if you've listened to this podcast, you know I help pastor a largely African-American church that I um, frequently come down uh, on the African-American side of things. If you, if you can style a, a philosophical debate in terms of African-American versus others, um, that I'm an advocate for African-Americans. No question about it. Uh, I'm not just blindly that way, but I certainly think that racism is one of the sins in American history and that we ought to be addressing it. Um, and while I'm not lost on the fact that African-Americans are sinners too, uh, the fact is that they, they, um, they are a, a people who are, who have been tragically treated for the most part. And, uh, we now are cycling back into some of that same stuff. So anyway, you hear perspectives here that you usually don't hear, uh, from a white guy doing a podcast. Uh, however, some of you are thinking, well, you know, it's the constitution, uh, that, uh, did not forbid slavery. It's the constitution that said that blacks in the South should only be counted as partial human beings for the sake of voting. And by the way, that was just for the sake of voting. It wasn't a statement as to their um, a philosophical statement about blacks being uh, less than human. It was, a, it was a political statement about how they ought to be counted for voting. Um, and so you're, you're saying to yourself, well, Stephen, if you, if you, if you, didn't, if you, if you are an advocate for African-Americans, how can you prefer a strict interpretation of the Constitution? Well, the reason is that I think there are, uh, and this is this is standard thinking in American history, there are matters that ought to be decided by elected legislators, by democratic assemblies, and not by courts. The role of the courts is to decide what is constitutional, what is legal, so to speak. The role of the Supreme Court is to rule on the constitutionality of actions of government and on issues in the society. That's the rule. That's the role of the Supreme Court. A, a symbol of, a, of the role that the founding fathers assigned to the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court was originally uh, a little uh, room in, in the basically in the basement of the U.S. Congress. Uh, it's not that it wasn't one of the three main branches of government. It is that it was not seen as the powerhouse that it is today. Today, what we have is courts actually creating law and not just creating law, sometimes uh, going even further. Uh, let me take, for example, the 1973 Roe v. Wade case. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on abortion in the famous Roe v. Wade case. Now, not only did the court rely upon trendy science that has not held uh, held its weight since then. Uh, they divided pregnancies into trimesters, which which most uh, you know OBGYNs would not do. The science does not really confirm that there's any kind of major distinction according to trimester. Um, they also almost fabricated law out of the Constitution. Um, they based their ruling on the right to privacy, uh, and I'm sure you remember from your, your school days that the right to privacy was originally about uh, 
illegal searches and seizures. It was about the right to have your own, um, to have you not have your papers searched, not have your private affairs searched. Um, it, it didn't have much to do with the protection of an of a. Uh, of a of a child in the womb, and so uh, even one of the justices at the time said that this law emanated from the penumbras of the law. It was it was found in the emanations of the penumbras of the law. That's a quote. Uh, so that's how faint this was. That's how ethereal this was. They were sort of sniffing the odor of the law uh, rather than having any actual concrete reason to believe what they were believing. Now. Let's say for a moment that I'm pro-abortion. I think everybody listening to this podcast knows I'm not, but let's say that I'm pro-abortion. It would have been better if the court had not been activist and pulled law and science out of its ear, but instead insisted uh, that this issue be decided by democratically elected Assemblies. This should have gone before Congress. This should have gone to state legislatures. That ruling, Roe v. Wade, 1973, helped to rip this country up. And it's because a few justices made decisions that cut across the majority of state legislatures and uh, ruled badly on an issue so that the issue, even if, like I say, if I was pro-abortion, uh, if I if I liked the Roe v. Wade outcome, uh, I would say that it was such an unstable ruling that it has caused tremendous tensions in our society. Uh, it, those rights are being eroded now. Uh, by state legislatures and by lower courts. Uh, it was just a bad ruling. And why? Because the judges were activists, because they were ruling not on the Constitution. They were creating law. They were creating categories. They were establishing truths that were not there previously. And this happens time after time after time. Do I believe that none of those rulings should have occurred? No. I think that those issues need to be decided in society, but they should be done by elected legislators. That's where laws should be made. That's where the direction of society is determined, not by the presidency, the executive branch, and not by the Supreme Court, by the People's Congress, by the people's legislators at the state level. So the problem is that those who want to do an end run around democratic processes appeal to courts, and then you have this activist judiciary, and most of the really horrible decisions that have been made uh, in our society, most of the really horrible public policy that's been made, have been made by activist courts. So Neil Gorsuch Gorsuch is going to uh, bring a strong emphasis uh, in the direction of Justice Scalia. He's going to emphasize uh, originalism. He's going to emphasize textualism. He's going to say judges should not rule beyond the uh, strictures of the Constitution. And then he's going to look at elected legislators and say, you are the ones who should be making laws, not judges. Judges simply rule based on what the Constitution allows. How constitutional is that ruling? Uh, how legal is it? Um, let me read a quote to you from Justice Gorsuch that I think will help uh, summarize where he is. He says, to apply the law as it is, focusing backward, actually I should have started this way, uh, the, the role of judges is to apply the law as it is, focusing backwards, not forward, and looking to text, structure, and history to decide what a reasonable reader at the time of the events in question would have understood the law to be, not to decide cases based on their own moral convictions or the policy consequences they believe might serve society best. 
In other words, justices should not be making moral decisions based on their own moral principles, nor should they be trying to decide what's best for society. Judges rule on the legality of issues. They rule on the at the Supreme Court level on the constitutionality of issues. And what we've had is a lot of activist judges, uh, frequently appointed by activist presidents and activist, uh, you know, state level officials, and sometimes elected uh, to be activists. But that's not the best role of the judiciary, and it's part of the reason that we've got some screwed up public policy. What we need is to keep the judges ruling based on the law and at the Supreme Court level based on the Constitution, and then require democratically elected legislators to make the decision. Abortion should have been decided for this country, or perhaps not for the country as a whole, but at a state level, by elected, democratically elected legislators, not by appointed judges. And Neil Gorsuch will uh, urge us to go back to that originalism. What does the language of the Constitution mean in terms of those who wrote it? Should it be amended? And if it should not be, then let legislatures handle the decisions. That's where wisdom prevails. That's the best we can do. And uh, we have suffered, I think, uh, under a more misguided sociological jurisprudence approach to judgeships. So I'm strongly in favor of Neil Gorsuch. I think he's going to be a fine um, Supreme Court justice. And I'll have to say that those who are opposing him, uh, I think are already a little bit embarrassed because this man is an independent thinker. This man is highly educated. This man is eminently qualified to be a Supreme Court justice, private practice, Department of Justice, clerked for Supreme Court justices, 10th Circuit Court, um, educated beyond the need uh, even of a judge into philosophy and, and, and thinking and reasoning that is going to be very valuable in the years to come. He's a fine appointment. He's, a, he's one of the smartest, in fact, maybe the best appointment that Donald Trump has made of any kind of, on any subject. And uh, I think those who are opposing him are doing so on ideological grounds. Uh, he will be confirmed, I believe, and, uh, and I think he's going to make a fine contribution. And by the way, since he's so young, um, should our republic continue, it's likely he's going to be of impact in our society for 50 years. And I welcome it. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on Fox and CNN. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and The Miracle of the Kurds. His new book is Ask the Question, Why We Must Demand Religious Clarity from Our Presidential Candidates, available on Amazon. Learn more about Stephen at stephenmansfield.tv. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is directed by Isaac Darnold, who also wrote, produced, and performed the podcast theme song. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.